Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is... Black, Black holes. <laughs> Almost said gravity. <laughs> we, we talked about this beforehand. We practiced like three times. We did. We practiced once so that I, I got all huffy about black holes. And then, it's true. And then we went right into it. Okay, but yes, we're going to talk about black holes and gravity. I let the, uh, let the cat out of the bag on that one. Gravity is an important part of this. But first, some so, fun facts. That's right, Sarah. What you got for us this week? So there were fewer questions because I'm trying to work on integrating my fun facts into the actual episode <laughs> instead of your, the next one. Answering your own questions rather than <laughs> asking me unprepared. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be a better uh, co-host. So the first one was uh, German. How do you pronounce that like brother in German? And it's Bruder. 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 And there is no umlaut. So there you go. Now you know. Uh, and then toads versus frogs. I don't remember why we were asking the difference between toads and frogs, but we did. So apparently toads are frogs. I think, Davis, you were like, are toads frogs or frogs toads? But toads are frogs. So they're all frogs. Yes. It's the toads that are unique. So the toads are the rec- are the squares. All squares are rectangles. Not all rectangles are squares. Exactly. So yes. toads are the squares. Toads are okay. the squares. They're the unique uh, ones. So they actually both fall into the same like scientific classification. Right. So they're in the same order. And then the family category, either Buffonidae, which I think is funny because it's like Buffon in French is like a clown. But I don't think that's what it is because it's Latin, but who knows? Uh, and that's the true toad or ranidae, which is frogs. Um, and so they actually, they have a lot of similarities. There's, they're a lot more similar than dissimilar compared to like mm-hmm. other animals. So like they yeah. both have like glands on the, their back and their head that can secrete compounds to repel predators, both shed their skin, and then they eat their skin. Hmm. It's called dermatophagy. And this is, uh, they eat it to hide that they're in an area. If they're leaving a bunch of skin, the predators can find them. And they both eat a carnivorous diet, catching prey with their long sticky tongues and swallowing prey whole. And they need to sense motion to understand what surrounds them. So if there's just like a dead bug near them, they won't eat it. Because they need Mm. the motion to know that it's there. Uh, And then they both use their eyes to swallow. Like they blink hard when they eat, which is weird and freaky. But I mean, they're mostly just like a mouth and legs. So it makes sense. Uh, And then the main differences are, uh, so frogs for skin... Frogs are like moist looking. They have a waxy secretion that keeps their skin from drying out. And then toads are drier, wartier, and more waterproof. Uh, Habitat, frogs live in damp areas. Toads live in drier areas. Uh, The eggs of frogs are laid in round or large round clusters on top of the water surface. Uh, And then in toads, they lay their eggs in long lines and it could be in water or in tall grasses and leaves surrounding the water. Um, And frogs will sometimes, the males will stay to guard the eggs in certain species. Whereas uh, the source that I found, which was reptile.guide, was uh, toads abandon their young, trusting that their offensive secretions will be enough to repel predators. That was funny. They said abandon. And then body shape. uh, Frogs are nimble. Their bodies are long and lean. When their hind leg is stretched to full length, it'll be longer than the head and the body combined. So it can make these really long jumps. Whereas toads, again, this is a direct quote from the website, toads hardly look like athletes. I thought was funny. They uh, crawl and prowl around on the ground more than leap, uh, and they have stout little bodies. That uh, 
whoever wrote that article clearly like not a huge toad fan yeah they had they a lot had some... more like pers- negative personification of the toads like what a way to say like not very athletic like yeah, you hardly look like athletes <laughs> like oh yeah because I, when i see a frog i really think to myself you know 100 meter dash sprinter yeah that's really the thought that goes through my head i see a frog with a little top hat and cane Doing a dance across like a countertop. Yeah, I I'm aware of the <laughs> reference, and and I was gonna make a joke is like, is that a frog or a toad? But I, we'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the next one was to clarify gene versus DNA. I got this was because I got a little turned around in our conversation yeah. on it in the podcast. So uh, a gene is a sequence of DNA. Yes. So DNA is like Correct. the whole thing. The whole thing that you have. Thank you, Davis. Uh, gold star. <laughs> Just sitting here in silent judgment. <laughs> uh, so only 2 to 3% of your DNA is the coding sequences. The coding mm-hmm. sequences are genes. So um, the quote that I had found about bananas and what we share with them. So with bananas, we share about 50% of our genes, which turns out to be only 1% of our DNA. There we go. Cleared that up for myself and now all of you. And then at one point, Davis mentioned insects at... Uh, at thermal vents in the ocean and it I didn't bring it up in the podcast because it was really not pertinent to our conversation but I was like Mm. I don't think they're insects so I looked it up uh, and you have a bunch of random stuff that lives down there like huge red-tipped tube worms did I say insects though I think I just said organisms didn't I you said insects said organisms that don't need to do cellular respiration (laughs) I promise (laughs) Uh, but yes there's these huge red-tipped tube worms ghostly fish strange shrimp with eyes on their backs and other unique species and all of life down there is based around chemosynthesis. So instead of photosynthesis, which is using photons and light, you have chemosynthesis, microbes at the base, converting chemicals into usable energy. And that's it. Fun facts. Right. Excellent. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Let us dive right in then and start talking about black holes. Enough about frogs and toads. <laughs> now into space. All right. So. Toads in space. The big reason we're talking about this today there uh i think you might have remembered from that was 2019 it's definitely before the pandemic um the first black hole image was released right i don't know if you remember this story at the time (laughs) uh so it's kind of like a big deal at the time uh this black hole it was imaged m87 which is messier object 87 there's a whole uh, catalog of these messier objects in the night sky uh and it was like the first ever image of a black hole a couple weeks ago there was another image of a black hole that was mm. released. This one of particular interest because this is the black hole that is at the center of the Milky Way. It's our black hole. It is our black hole. So the uh, there's some interesting things around this idea of like black holes at the center of galaxies. We've kind of long um, theorized that 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 we're pretty sure that's what the. At, is at the center of most galaxies. You know, there's a lot of gravity and things that we observe that like has like led us to this belief. But we were never really able to like directly just sort of like look at the center of a galaxy and go like 100% that's a black hole. Um, And so it's particularly interesting that we were able to do it with the supermassive black hole that's at the center of the Milky Way. So they've imaged this black hole. It's called Sagittarius A star or so there's an acronym kind of that they use for it. It's S-G-R-A and then asterisk. So star is sometimes it's referred to. And it has, then of course the acronym interestingly has its own pronunciation, which I think is kind of hilarious. So it's not that the pronunciation is hilarious, but just that like you have this 
you have a thing that the acronym represents, which is the full name Sagittarius A star. Then you have the acronym. And then you have the way you say the acronym, like, colloquially, if you were, like, talking about a research paper. I just find that kind of funny. Um, it was probably developed by people who have to say it a lot. And Sagittarius A star is too many syllables. It is. It is too many syllables. Like, I completely <laughs> concur. Because M87 doesn't really have this same moniker. Because yeah. M87 is, like, that's, like, easy. That's, like, a code word. That's, yeah. like, you know, secret agent style. That's easy. But, like, yeah, Sagittarius A star, if you had to say that, if you were giving, like, a keynote speech and you had to say that 50 times, it would get yeah. really old really fast. Yeah. So, SGR A star, the abbreviation is pronounced Sag A star. So, I feel like you, and I feel like, too, like, the more you say it, the more it's going to blend into, like, a single, like, Sag A star. Like, I don't know. I don't know how exactly it's pronounced. But, so, if you hear us use that language, that's what we're referring to. We're, basically, we're mostly talking about this new black hole that was imaged, Sagittarius A star, Sag A star. We'll pick your poison, whatever you want, right? I'm glad you figured out how to pronounce it because I kept seeing it like Sagittarius A asterisk. That's a mouthful. Well, you got to remember, right? Like, it's like the, the, the hashtag used to be the pound sign. I mean, it still is. It still is yeah. the pound. Well, it's the same thing, right? Like, so on the phone, you would always use the pound sign and then it would be star. It would be like, call. Right. Like, remember you used right. to be able to know yeah, caller yeah. ID people? It used to be star 69. I think they changed it like star 71 or something like that. But uh, yeah, we all know why. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's the same sort of thing. So it's like star and pound on the okay. uh, on the num number pad. And then like, because of Twitter and stuff, the ha hashtag took over our understanding of of the pound sign, the hashtag. Although I think hashtag was its original name, then pound sign, and it's the whole thing. Anyway, doesn't really matter. Yeah, we're back in um, our language episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, so this black hole that they've imaged is about 27,000 light years away from Earth. Believe it or not, at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> we are pretty far off onto one of the arms of the Milky Way. Yeah. Um, so we're quite far from the center of the galaxy. So, so we're not getting sucked in anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, we're probably not going to get eaten by it. Uh, it'd have to go through a lot of stuff first to get to us. Yeah. There's some interesting stuff around, like, and we'll get into, like, the anatomy of black holes. And, like, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with terms like the event horizon and things like that. And there is some interesting stuff that shows that, like, even if you set a planet like Earth or, like, the whole solar system, like, near the edge of the event horizon, it would still never really get, like, sucked in. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, like, you're just, it was something, like, if you put a black hole uh, at the spot where the sun is now that was the same size, like, as the sun, even though, like, our sun will never become a black hole because it's not large enough, mm -hmm. it would be, like that all of the orbits of the planets would continue as normal. Is that just a mass thing, though? If it's the same size as the sun, is it the same mass as the sun, so it would have the same gravity? I think it's... I, I'm not 100% sure of, like, the mathematics specifically of it, because it does say, like, you if you were to put a black hole in place of the sun in the same position, but, and I think, yeah, it's, like, it's supposing that that black hole is not... that whatever magical science you're doing this with... You're, you're not inside the event horizon, so you're not, like, beyond the point of no return or, like, yeah. inside the black hole, essentially, or this this part of the black hole where, like, no light's escaping, essentially, stuff like that. But the idea is that, like, that the orbits would all just continue as normal because, like, that's really all the sun is, right? It's a gravity well that's holding everything in place. Yeah. So you replace it with a black hole, even one of higher density than the sun mm -hmm. is that those orbits wouldn't all of a sudden just like change instantly and then everything yeah. would crash into the middle yeah. it's not that dramatic it's like there's too much conserved like angular momentum and stuff i think they're saying and like i think they're just probably trying to make the point that like black holes are not these voracious monsters i right? think that's the probably the best yeah. way to put it exactly it's not like you drop a black hole in or like um 
Yeah, like, even, like, I remember there's, like, a Simpsons, like, Treehouse of Horror episode where, like, Homer creates a singularity, like, in his basement somehow, (laughs) like, of course, like, and it doesn't, like, instantly just suck everything in, but as it starts to consume, like, more material, it gets larger and larger to the point where then it's, like, out of control, but again, same sort of thing, it's, like, you couldn't, uh, they used to say this, too, about, and we'll go into, like, the Large Hadron Collider and Super Colliders and stuff like that, that was one of the concerns when they first turned on. Yeah, that they're gonna make a black hole, I remember that, I was in high school or something, I was, like, well, this is a concerning thing that I have no power about, so I guess I just won't think about it. I'll go to English class. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and I think, like, yeah, that's the, the point they're trying to make, is that, like, y- you know, even if a black hole materialized right where the sun is now, it's not like we would all get sucked in in one second and, like, all life would end instantly. Like, life would end, but that's a diff- different problem. But if you want to test this, if you are someone who plays, what's that game, Universe Sandbox? Or, I think it's called Universe Sandbox. Sandbox Universe, something like that. I have no idea. Yeah, and you can just, like, mess with space. Try it. Put a black hole where our sun is. Tell us what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would be so, very curious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah, there's other things you can do online. There's, like, .org, like, simulations and stuff like that. I can't remember the names, but you can do the same thing. You can, like, create, like, gravity wells in a yeah. simulation, and then you can, <laughs> like, see space. them merge and stuff like that. It's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a couple of interesting facts about Sag Star. That was uh, imaged, and all this was done by the Event, oh, Horizon, yes. the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration, or... EHTC, if we mention that, that's who we're talking about. And this is an organization of over over 200 astronomers around the world. So they're the ones taking these pictures and uh, sharing them with the world. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't find specific data on like how many different imaging sites it involves. I think it basically involves any site that can do this because typically even with like, um, even with like the Hubble now, you can like book time in the Hubble. Like any, yeah. even like a layperson can go in and be like, I want to image this thing, or I want it to point it in this direction. You know, three weeks from now on this day, or whatever it might be. So I think it just involves you know any facility that you, that you can do this high level type of like imaging with the imaging and the the digital stuff after with the imaging, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. So uh, so the interesting things about Sag A Star, uh, it is smaller than M eighty seven, which was visualized a few years ago. It's so Sag A star is about 4.3 million times the mass of our sun. It's a number that basically doesn't mean anything because like, what's the mass of the sun? Uh, and then and, it's 4.3 million times more than that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but obviously the sun is heavy enough to keep the entire solar system and all the way out to the Oort cloud sort of in its influence. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what 4.3 million times that level of influence is like. It's enough to keep an entire galaxy in line. Mm-hmm. Um, so M87, uh, as a comparison is 6 billion times the mass of our sun. So again, doesn't seem like a huge difference, but 4.3 million to 6 billion is a massive leap. A, it's huge. It's insane. It's several orders of magnitude. Uh, so interestingly, as they were imaging Sag A star, uh, because the, it's smaller, this is kind of maybe one of those counterintuitive things because Sag A star is smaller, the material moves around the accretion disc much faster. So sort of one of the, it, uh, so the accretion disk is this area, this mass of gas, usually in material that surrounds the event horizon. We can still see the accretion disk because it's not quote unquote in the black hole. Yeah. It's uh, just like orbiting it. It's real close on the edge. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is the same sort of idea of like, even if you were in the accretion disk of a black hole, it would still take like many thousands of human lifetimes yeah. <laughs> for an object to get like sucked in past the event horizon and like spaghettified and stuff like that. It's just... And especially we'll, we'll deal with it like what a black hole actually is. The actual physical boundary of what it is is, is, is interesting. So, um, the, so, so an interesting way to compare the sizes of the two black holes that I found was like if Sag A star is the size of a donut, 
then M87 would be the size of a football field. Which is, yeah, that, that highlights the size difference there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think it means an American football field, Canadian football fields are slightly larger. Um, oh. Doesn't really matter. I even think at that point, it still wouldn't matter. Like it, the, the relative, um, the, re the relative relationship, the, the ratio between them is probably still pretty similar. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, this posed some interesting problems to the EHT as they were imaging these black holes. So interestingly, the data that was captured for M87 and SAG star was done at the same time in 2017. But the group basically looked at the two pieces of data and for a number of different reasons said, M87 is gonna be a much easier um, com computational task and we're gonna try it first. We're gonna work out all of our problems on this much simpler case and then we'll apply everything we learned to the other set of data. Makes sense. Right? Obviously, Sag star was of particular interest to the group to image because it's the one at the center of our galaxy. And of course, that's going to hold some, even though it's going to be more difficult to do, it's going to hold some particular water in a lot of like science environments and spheres. And if there was ever a way that we could make it to a black hole and within a human lifetime, that's the one we would go to. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, I think a lot of like, um, you know, like 4x like explore exploit like like civilization type games or whatever that involves space travel often involve getting to like the center of the milky way as some yeah. level of like end game goal i think um, that was the thing in wasn't that what it was in uh spore it was what it was in spore yeah. i never yeah. got there in spore I, yeah, I, me either. I wanted to explore in the space level and then i just kept getting attacked by yeah. other civilizations yeah but anyway <laughs> so the the interesting thing about now having two images is that it gives astrophysicists like two reference points to test all these theories about how material is affected by the gravity of a black hole, how it acts around a black hole. And it basically gives us two comparison points of different sizes to start to test some of these theories and understand like, oh, you know, we, we like have this math equation that explains this. And it's like, oh, that doesn't match up with what we're observing. Right. So it's just like it's observational data. That's really all it is. And it's just sort of, you know, maybe not in the way that we think about it the same, like with, you know, the observational data that people used to do for, like... Um, frogs. Frogs. Great example, right? <laughs> and why toads are less athletic, right? Like, that's really obvious. Like, the, like, the practical science of it, I think, is more obvious to, like, you know, our natural experience. You go out, you see things, you observe changes, you make assumptions based on the things you've observed in life. And, like, that is science, but it's also just, like, what we do as human beings all the time. Like Jerry Seinfeld and Airplane Peanuts. Well, and everything. It's like, well, even like that's a good point, right? Is that like most comedians, there's a type of com like uh, stand-up comedy that's observational. Yeah. And that's where it's just like, I'm going to go about my daily life. I'm going to observe funny things. And then I'm going to tell you a story in a comedic way about the things I observe about people. And one of the reasons why they are sometimes so um, pervasive is because they speak to an experience that everybody has noticed to some extent. What's the deal with it, man? Mm-hmm. Before we move on, just mm -hmm. uh, one thing about like the how fast the material is moving around the black hole, and it uh, so for Sagittarius A star, it's almost like two thousand times smaller than M eighty seven, which meaning light zips around it in two thousand times less time. So it's like a smaller, a smaller black hole and so the light's going like way faster mm -hmm. and then uh, as for how much is falling into it, astronomer and EHT collaborator Sarah, oh I didn't practice this. Isaun. Isaun, I would say. I don't know. One of those. Uh, said that comparatively, it would be like a human eating one grain of rice ev once every million years. 
So they're not voraciously eating stuff. <laughs> it's slow. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about, like, there were some challenges with Sajay Star. A big one being, right, that we are in the plane of the galaxy. M87 was, like, we're just, like, pointing out into space at this object. There's a lot less interference, like, from our position out to where M87 is. Yeah, to look at M87, it was, like, we're standing, like, imagine the galaxy is, like, a plate. Or, like, mm. a, a plate. So, we're standing, like, kind of closer to the edge of the plate. And we just, like, look out. Look out at the other stuff in the plate or in the world, but then when we're trying to look at Sajay Star, we are looking in towards the middle of the plate, and there's a bunch of other stuff on the plate blocking our view, like a bunch of gas and rocks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more like interference essentially. It'd be like taking a photo straight up through the trees of a forest to get like you know whatever you're trying to capture right you're going to get less interference because you're going straight up through the trees there's usually going to be an opening versus trying to take a photo like through the forest of something that's on the other side you got all these trees in the way and you have to find a way to deal with that interference to image what you want to so the interesting thing about like taking a black hole image and what a black hole image actually is is so we see we see these publications come out um you know cbc whatever it might be and we think to ourselves okay like Great. Cool. It's this weird red and black image of a black hole. Yeah. It's it's blurry and it's, yeah. Yeah. You look at them and you're like, everyone's like, oh my God, we took a picture of a black hole. And then you're sitting here and you're like, well, I took a picture of a dog. So why are you so excited about the black hole? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the thing that's really important to remember about these black hole images is that what we are seeing is an amalgamation of thousands of petabytes of data uh, What's a petabyte, Davis? A petabyte is, so So you got your gigabytes, you got your terabytes, you got your petabytes, right? So they're kind of different, they're, um, they're just units of measurement for data. And so a petabyte is one, uh, it's a thousand terabytes. So if you think about like nowadays, you can get a terabyte hard drive. And they're when, good. Yeah. And when I was a kid, and yeah, nowadays you can get a terabyte solid state drive. Yeah. Like, and when I was a kid, a gigabyte thumb drive would run you like $150. Oh yeah. It was basically unheard. And I don't even think you could at, for a long time, you couldn't even get a thumb drive, like a USB stick with a gigabyte on it. Oh yeah. No, not even close. Right. And this comes down to like Hooke's law and like all these like weird things with, with computer science and how transistors, small transistors have gotten. But anyway, so, uh, you know, it used to be that a megabyte in the seventies would take up an entire room. Yeah. And even to the point where it used to be that that data would be stored on punch cards. So anyway, (laughs) this is more about like computer science, but, uh, just for, you know, relative sake, um, it is also a petabyte is also a million gigabytes. So if you think about um, a large, like what's a good like reference file size? Like you download a movie, right? A really high quality movie might be, you know, maybe 10 gigabytes of information. Like, you know, like a Blu-ray quality, you know, probably doesn't have any of like the DVD menu stuff or whatever. What about uh, like video games, like big video games, like Mortal Kombat 11 is like what, 60 gigs? Yeah, a lot of video games are, are pushing into the 100 gig mark now. So you think about, you know, that's one ten thousandth of a petabyte. <laughs> Right. So you don't really, you can't go out and buy a petabyte. It's, you know, a petabyte is like their server stacks, their huge facilities where they're storing data. But it's just to say that this is an insane amount of data that they're capturing. Yeah. It's really not just, they took a picture. Yeah. And they're taking pictures from all these different sites and we'll talk about why, but then to give you another visualization of how much data this is, is that you would not digitally transmit a petabyte of data. You're going to physically 
ship it. Um, <laughs> you know, this used to happen like even with like the dome movies at like the science center and stuff like that is they would physically ship you hard drives because it's just way faster and more economical mm. than trying to transfer it online because for a number of different reasons, right? One, if your internet connection fails, your download fails. Oh. Um, it takes up a ton of server time, right? You're basically consuming two platforms, two workstations in two locations to transfer something for whatever length of time that it's going to take. Well, I just think about like when you're sending something through email and if you try to send a file that's like I have Gmail, if I try to send a file that's too big, it's like we're going to upload this as a link in your in your Google Drive yeah. and then they can get a link as opposed to trying to send it to them. And even yeah. that, right? Like even to load something like that onto the cloud, it's like, well, now you need to have a cloud facility that has that yeah. much storage space and a high like fidelity enough connection that you can actually download this in a way that's not going to take like 10,000 years. Kind yeah. of thing. Obviously that's hyperbole, but again, it's just to really show you like they used to do this with data all the time. They used to physically ship data because it was so hard because we didn't have the infrastructure internet infrastructure and even now we're like this is dealing with such large volumes of data that you can't ship it that way once you take all of this data and you pile it all together and you run it through all these complex algorithms that you design and you boil it down essentially into this image file again quote unquote really what that image is is it's all these data points that you have imaged that come together and you can create this interpretation of the boundary of the black hole, the material that's around it and how it's moving through space. But as a researcher, if you're saying, oh, I believe that gas around a black hole is going to behave in this way based on you know this crazy long complicated math equation, you can take this massive repository of data, run your algorithm against it and say, look, my algorithm and what it describes objects moving around a black hole as matches up with the observed data from M87 or Sag, Sag A star. Yeah, you can use it to like prove a lot of theories or at least get a bit of evidence for these theories because so much of this is literally just theoretical or is, is like is based on science, but only up to a point And then it's like, and now we're guessing. Well, and science ultimately is observational, right? Like yeah. we can get, we've, we've done amazing things with mathematics. We can get extremely far places, but until you can apply that mathematics in an observable way or, or observe the proof of those mathematics in real life, it's really hard to take something from even like, not even a theory, but speculative to a theory to a potential law. Like there's only a handful of scientific laws because they have to be completely like inalienable. Well, I even uh, think of this with uh, like with Darwin. There is a story about he found this this flower, and yes, it, mm -hmm. it had this really Classic long one. calyx, right? Like so that's like the where the pet the petals meet together, and you have like your nectar, whatever, stored at the bottom of this. And he found this flower, and he hypothesized based on like the type of flower that there had to be an like an insect that had a really really long tongue that could pollinate this. So, and I I think he theorized it was going to be a moth based on like the color of the flower and like the environment and stuff and then but it wasn't until like it was like 50 years 50 years ago i don't know it, it took a while and yeah. eventually they did find this moth and I'll, I'll find what it is specifically but like yeah you can you see a thing you have some knowledge you're like so based on this he was like okay based on what i know about pollinator flower relationships and uh the sh like the structure of this flower and the environment i hypothesize it must have a pollinator like this that has developed specifically because of it but then you have to actually go out and observe and find it. 
Another great example of this is with biogenesis. So there used to be this belief, right? If you have a piece of meat and it starts oh, to yeah. rot, right? It attracts flies. We know that it's the rotting meat attracts the flies because they want to eat it. But for a long time, the belief was that, well, rotting meat produces flies because that's the observation. Yeah. But it because took Because we weren't, they weren't seeing the flies come and land on the meat. They were just seeing like eggs and then maggots in the meat. Yeah, exactly. So it looked like it just like spontaneously appeared. Exactly. So this idea that like, oh, well, rotted, rotting animal materials produces these types of pests, right? And there were a number of experiments that were devised to show why this wasn't the case. And then ultimately, because like at that time, it's not like we had video technology where you could just set up a video camera, watch this thing rot, see the flies come by. So it's sort of, this is, it's good to highlight like where theory comes up against observation and why the two are very important to kind of have together, right? Because if we didn't have the observational data from the experiments that were designed to disprove biogenesis, we might still be sitting here thinking that like meat grows fruit flies, yeah. that like they're inherently in the meat, which is not, which we know is not true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they, so these uh, scientists, they took a lot of images, so, so, so much data worth uh, and then in a complex way, essentially stitched it together. And this really reminded me of uh, one of my good friends, Alana. You should find, I think alanavokes.com is still up. You should find it because she's an artist. And one of the projects she was working on was she would take pictures of, of a flower like all the way around it, almost like bullet time from the matrix, but mm -hmm. just pictures. Yep. Uh, so she'd take pictures all the way around it and then she would be able to stitch them together, basically to create like a, a 3D model of this. And then she would like flatten it in 2D. It's very cool. She has very cool work. Go check her out. Um, but that's, when we're talking about this is kind of how I think of it, right? Like you're taking pictures of the same thing from a bunch of different angles, and then you can get a much more complete understanding of the thing compared to if you're just trying to take like one picture from the front. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, well, what does it look like from the side? What's it look like from the back? And especially when we're looking through all of these layers of the galactic pane, right? Like we're looking through our disc of all the fog and everything. Uh, one researcher I saw related to looking through a window, uh, but the window's covered in like fog and ice. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to do that, then the more, like, the more different angles you can try to come at this from, the better chance you have of creating an image that actually, like, means something comparable to what it actually is. Mm -hmm. So in the context of imaging a black hole, this is a technique that they call very long baseline interferometry, so or VLBI. So interferometry is a common technique that's used in a number of different imaging, in particular with the imaging in space. And the idea is to use the light information from two or more telescopes to create a more detailed, finer resolution image. So we've talked a little bit in the past about like the anatomy of a telescope and how it works, right? But the big limits on light telescopes or even radio telescopes, like any type of telescope is light, especially is your lens. Right. So to, in order to image objects that are further away and being able to distinguish between small objects at those great distances, you have to have larger and larger and larger imaging surfaces or mirrors, those sorts of things. Right. To concentrate the light down. That's like the James Webb, right? Oh, exactly. And I mean, the James Webb still like you're dealing with this infrared light, but the same sort of thing. You have this much larger mirror, right? We talked about the mirror being so large that it had to unfold in 16 segments because it couldn't be sent into space as is, right? Same sort of thing, the Hubble, because it's in space, can have a much larger uh, lens than telescopes on Earth. Mm -hmm. There are some telescopes on Earth that have these insanely large lenses, but you reach a maximum point where it's like, you just can't manufacture something of that quality 
any larger than a certain size. It just gets unwieldy. Yeah. If you want to hear any more about this, go listen to our James Webb one. We mm -hmm. released it uh, around Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So uh, basically what they do is they have all of these telescopes across the world that are all pointing to the same direction in, in space. Not at the same time, but as the Earth rotates and as each of them have this kind of window to image this area. And then just like Sarah said, right, you're taking all of these images that are essentially at different angles. Now, obviously there's not a telescope on every square meter of the Earth. So you are missing places and you use algorithms to fill in what you're missing. But essentially you are using the same strength telescopes pointing at the same object from different angles, extrapolating and interpolating that data in order to create a, basically to falsely amp up the resolution of your kind of telescope array. So you might have a single telescope that only has the ability to a resolution that is so fine at that great of a distance, but by piling them all together, you are artificially inflating, you know, what you can resolve the diff the unique objects that you can clearly like define in an image that th that is that far out yeah because if you're looking at it from say telescope a and location a and you're seeing it through you know galactic pain and you've got like a big blurry chunk in one section because like that's just where the gas is but if you look at it at from telescope b in location b which could be super far away then that same obstacle is not in the way of your object You'll have different obstacles in the way, but you might be able to see that that patch that was really like hidden from telescope A, you can see it through telescope B. Mm -hmm. And you can also image a little bit over time, right? Because really what you're observing is the objects that are moving around the black hole. You can't observe the black hole itself. There's no light escaping from it. So you're observing the accretion disk and the movements of things. And so it also gives you more information for your guesswork, right? Because basically we're saying, well, we think objects move around black holes this way. Now we're getting a little bit of this observable data. We combine all of that, our algorithms for our interferometry, our algorithms for the movement of objects that we around a black hole that we're not able to observe just because of the distances between telescopes and all sorts of different things. And we compile all of that together into basically this finalized like data file and ultimately what comes to us as this image and what they're doing is they're taking all of this data all of the guesswork that they're applying the simulations that are applying and they're saying okay we observed this black hole over you know let's say 100 days or whatever it is right and we saw these objects moving and it was here and then it was here and then we caught in this image we caught you know an object here where we didn't see it before and they and they go through all that and all those um, simulations and calculations and then they pile them. It would be like you stack them all up on top of each other. And then you say, okay, this group of things, this is happening all the time. We're seeing it in every image. So let's play up those elements mm. on our final image. Then there might be like, okay, well, that was a bit of an outlier. That was a weird thing. You know, like we talked about in the last episode with the DNA sequencing, where, you know, yeah, if you had a technology that could read the entire genome in one go and be perfect, that would be the way to do it. And it wouldn't actually be that much data. But really what happens is because all of those tools are imperfect, you have to take images of the same spot over and over and over and over again so that you have enough data to say, this is a mistake or this is an outlier. But because so much of the black hole imaging is based off of a type of guesswork, a very informed guesswork, at a certain point you have to sort of say, I don't know if it's there or not, but we don't see this observation as frequently as we see these observations. So let's not make that the bright orange spot on the image. That'll be, you know, a, a dimmer spot or that's why the image is blurry. Yeah, it gives you the uh, the redundancy. Yes. To be more accurate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
Uh, and this is why, again, when we look at these images, we just see a blurry orange circle. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that is because ultimately what we're looking at is not, you know, camera up against telescope lens, snap, here's a black hole. It's here's thousands of observation over huge periods of time, all then calculated out and then piled together into something that we can publish. It's a lot more work than you think to go into that. It's picture. a ton of work. <laughs> it's petabytes of data. And again, this is why in 2017, they did the imaging for both of these. Yeah. The imaging part is the easy part, but then it took to get to Sag, Sag star. It took five more years after those, Im that imaging was taken to even publish this. And they had to do a different one first. It only took two years to get M87 done. Then it took another three years after M87 was published applying all the lessons that they learned to get to Sag star, the image we have now. How much the pandemic slowed that down? I don't know. Who knows? But I mean, again, it's, you know, you kind of take the easy case. You work, it's like when you're learning a math concept, you yeah. know, here's a bunch of easy ones. Now you're on the test. Here's an example you've never seen before, but can you work it out using the same theory? Yeah, or like you have your equation that you have to learn, you have to do all the math, and then you get a word problem. Yeah. So you have to apply it, right? Exactly, yeah. the application of it. Yeah. But so we've been mm -hmm. talking about like the story and we're doing the structure of this episode a little different than we've done for a lot of them. For this one, we've started with our story and all of the imaging and we're going to kind of work like not backwards, but like down into the nitty gritty. Like we're going to keep asking questions from the stuff we've researched. So if you like this format, let us know, please. Uh, but yeah, so we've gone through, we have these images of the black hole and then it was, okay, well, how did they get the picture of the black hole? And now we're going to ask Davis, what is a black hole? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to think of a good pun, but I nothing nothing came to mind fast enough, yeah. so I'll just just move on. Yeah. Um, I could have vamped longer. No, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> it, it's like, as we were talking about before, it's hard not to think of like dirty jokes yeah. when you're talking about black holes. <laughs> and that was where my mind went initially. So I will just I will just slide on past that to keep our safe for work rating. Um, <laughs> so a black hole. And I think a lot of us have the kind of innate, not innate understanding, it's not like we're born with an understanding of what a black hole is, um, but I think a lot of us have been exposed to the understanding of what a black hole is. So a black hole, quite simply, is a space where matter has accumulated and the gravity becomes so great that light cannot escape. That is sort of typically what we're introduced to when we start learning about like space and black holes, right? And I think the one that most people will really gravitate to ah, there's your pun there it comes. um <laughs> is the the fact that light cannot escape this space right this is why it was so difficult to image them for a long time while we proposed that black holes existed because their existence explained some of the op other observations we were making about space and the movement of objects it took a really it took until the 60s to actually create like I think it was the 60s, it might have been the 80s, of like actual proof of like, this is where a black hole is, oh. right? It just took a much longer time because again, they're elusive. They're spots in space where we actually can't see. Yeah, it's like that paint that's uh, like the blackest black paint. Yeah, Vanta Black, right? Something like that, yeah. I think it's Vanta Black. There's yeah. one that was made by, this guy bought the rights to it and he's like a real jerk in the art world. And then uh, no one else was allowed to use it. And then someone else made a paint like, very, very similar, and then said everyone in the world can use it except for this guy. It's mm -hmm. a very funny story. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so black holes. So yeah, you have these these uh, points in space that are so dense, they create deep gravity sinks. And the gravity is so strong, like Davis was saying, light cannot escape. That's why we can't see them. We mm -hmm. just see, if you see like an absence of stuff in space, you're like, ah, yes, a black hole. It's 
because it's pulling in all the light. Mm -hmm. And so when we say density, right, like density, we have a general understanding of density as a concept on Earth. Density really is like how close or how packed in the molecules of an object are generally is how we kind of understand density. So water, uh, I think we set the relative, I think we use water as a relative density. So we say the relative density of water is like one uh, gram per milliliter. Okay. Um, which is what a lot of the um, the basis of the metric system is around anyway. It's kind of a different, separate <laughs> conversation. But we know, for example, that wood is less dense than water. Certain types of wood, you know, yes, there are exceptions that where wood will sink. Mm -hmm. But most types of wood generally have about a 0 0.9 um, grams per uh, centimeter cubed, I think it is in that case, right? But, you know, weight per unit volume. Uh, same thing with like oil is around the same amount. That's why oil floats on water. It's less dense. There are fewer molecules and mass in a single given point than there is for water, which is very tightly packed, right? Same sort of thing. Gases are even less dense. Helium is less dense than the atmosphere. That's why helium floats on and on and on. So when we talk about density in the idea of a black hole, we are talking about a point in space where the density is essentially infinite. Mm -hmm doesn't really seem possible and we don't really know exactly what this means but this is what like kind of the math around a singularity and what we observe with black holes is and that's what a singularity is as well a singularity yes. is the place of infinite density in the center of a black hole this is like yeah proposed by relativity because mm -hmm. yeah when i was going through this i was like what is a singularity though that's what it is yeah singularity is an interesting one in science and science fiction because it it ends up being a number of different things. So gravitational singularity is a black hole. Typically in space, when we talk about a singularity, we're talking about a point of infinite density. There's also um, some weird stuff around singularities in uh, science and technology, in particular around um, like uh, AI and cybernetics. Yeah. And it's this idea that the singularity, the technical, the technological singularity would be the, the, the merging of like human physiology and like AI and cybernetic technology and all this, of those things coming together. There's a few different things. Yeah. yeah. I thought the singularity was just when like sentient AI is developed, like truly sentient AI. Mm -hmm. And so the, again, this there's is a like, bunch, yeah. yeah, there's a <laughs> bunch of uses of the word singularity. And then there's like, even again, in different types of science fiction, there's ideas around a, um, like a site, not a psychic singularity, but like, um, if all, you know, human beings, we are not a singularity. We all have individual minds, but like, what if we became all sort of one interconnected mind like or something like Borg? that? Like the Borg? Kind of like the Borg. It more comes from like some weird, like anime and stuff like that. Oh, but like, <laughs> yeah, this idea that like, yeah, when, when like everything would kind of be mostly it comes down to like when everything would be boiled down to a single point whether that be in technology and ai whether that be in space with gravity okay uh, and i did find a good uh way that this was described um on the physics of the universe.com website and it's in the center of a black hole is a gravitational singularity a one-dimensional point which contains a huge mass in an infinitely small space where density and gravity become infinite and space-time curves infinitely and where the laws of physics as we know them cease to operate. As the eminent American physicist Kip Thorne describes it, it is the point where all laws of physics break down. That's perfect transition, right? Because we we think about the black hole, right? It's, we Sometimes we visualize it as this giant black sphere which from which nothing escapes. But really ultimately is it's this, this infinitely small point beyond the comprehension of like a human mind 
and with infinite as we know at infinite density. So if you think about complex mathematics, we have things like asymptotes, right? Where you're dealing with a limit where all of a sudden the graph is just going straight up or in logarithmic understanding, like straight across and the change is happening very slowly or smallly, right? We think about like the end point of exponential growth is like that. It's like a straight line. It's a limit or an asymptote where the line is just straight up and down. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Asymptote is you're going to get like so close, but never get there, right? Yeah, typically. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we deal with it a lot of times in like trigonometry and stuff like yeah. that. Right. Um, and it is just an understanding it as you approach this point, you can get closer and closer and closer to it, but you can never actually reach it. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's the, it's like the classic, like a man or goes into a bar, he orders a beer. The next man comes in and orders half a beer and then keeps going, keeps going. And then the guy sort of goes, it's like these darn mathematicians, I'm, you know, we'll be here. We'll be here forever kind of thing. Cause it's like, they're, cons they're always coming in and ordering half of what the last guy had, which means that he's always going to be like a drop of beer in the glass. I hadn't heard it as a beer example, but I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> but this is I, this idea, right. Is to say that like, we don't know that the point inside like when you say infinite density, like, well, what does that mean? Right? Like we're just talking about a point where you are so far close to this limit that the, the regular definitions of what density means are just meaningless Yeah. because it's just like, well, you're at such an extreme that like we can't even talk about it in the way that we talk about most normal physics. And so we call, so typically we call the boundary of a black hole, the event horizon. Which is so epic. It is super epic. <laughs> I think there's even a movie called Event Horizon, which is so, about yeah. them approaching a black hole or something, yeah. right? Super common science fiction kind of trope, the Event Horizon, or like escaping a black hole and yeah. like all these like ridiculous things. Uh, and the Event Horizon, or the point of no return, is this point at which no light escapes. So after you cross this boundary, we don't see anything. So when you look at the black hole images that were taken, in particular M87, because it's a little bit more like clearly defined it's this ring of like orange material which is how it's been visualized and then this it's like donut shape right it's this ring of material and then we call kind of that center point the black hole but really that boundary of where there is no more of those orange dots essentially that are all laid on top of each other that's the event horizon you go past that point light can't escape anymore. You are so in the grip of this point of infinite density that nothing can gain the acceleration necessary to escape. As far as we know, nothing can gain the acceleration to escape. Uh, so sometimes we call the disk that's around that, we call it the photon sphere because there's things that are being emitted from the accretion disk that we do see and continue to swirl around. And even to the point where as material gets sucked in past the event horizon, some of that material doesn't go into the black hole, quote unquote, it gets ejected. And so sometimes you'll hear this idea of like, there are jets of material coming off of black holes and that's not material that's coming into the black hole and then being like shot out. It's material that approaches the event horizon and for whatever various physical reasons is not getting sucked in, but like is getting basically slingshotted. Slingshotted out, yeah. So this is like how we used to have to like take off from earth. And if we're trying to go like deeper into space, we. Uh, we'll send stuff so it like orbits another planet just enough to get a slingshot and use some of its gravity to get further out. Yeah, and we don't fully understand all the processes that are causing this to happen because we know that these gases are basically being ejected which mu with much more force than we're seeing like from the accretion disk. And so sometimes we even start to now understand that black holes essentially have like an orientation uh, and that like, I believe it was even said with Sag A star that Earth is essentially like in the like, um, like 
like that the black hole is essentially facing earth so like where it is in the plane of the universe those like jets of material are coming out towards us oh. obviously there's trillions of tons of matter in between us and that black hole so we're never affected by it but like it would be like an insane amount of like ionizing radiation and oh. stuff like that is, is what they believe um so tons of different kind of like effects that are happening and one of these effects that uh you might have heard from probably from science fiction is spaghettification mm -hmm. where uh this is the theory that as an object approaches a black hole it will be stretched out infinitely so as opposed to just being like ah, and like down a water slide spaghettification is uh it happens due to the increasing differential and gravitational attraction on different parts of it so like if you were like sliding down a water slide into a black hole your toes are going to hit first right and like we said with it was Sajay star it's eating like the ascent the equivalent of one grain of rice every century for a human yeah human eating yeah yeah so as like a human comparison so for this one like uh as your toes hit it due to the increasing differential and gravitational attraction on different parts your toes versus your head um you would start to get like stretched out before presumably losing dimensionality completely and disappearing irrevocably into the singularity so you start getting like stretched out like spaghetti and before you lose like your shape completely but an observer watching from a safe that's like what it would be like to go through one but an observer watching from a safe distance outside would have a different view of the event this is again from physics of the universe um, according to relativity theory they would see the object moving slower and slower as it approaches the black hole until it comes to a complete halt at the event horizon never actually falling into the black hole which is very weird well and this comes like <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more about like einstein's theories of relativity both special and general relativity but this is like the understanding that gravity warps space-time and as you get closer to objects with greater mass your your perception of gravity like your perception of time changes relative to an observer and so that's where an observer at a safe distance seems to observe the person being spaghettified or the object being spaghettified at the 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 edge of the black hole as basically standing still because from their perspective like that is how time is moving but whereas from your perspective in the black hole should you be able to perform something like this it would be like an infinite period of time like right like we don't know exactly how long it would feel like but it would just be comparably to the person outside the black hole it would be infinite that person would die and turn to dust and turn into another person essentially <laughs> long before you know, you would even move an inch, essentially. Uh, there's classic examples of this in lots of different science fiction and lots of different, um, you know, recent films even and stuff like that. This idea that, you know, you go down to a planet with heavier gravity, time is going to be moving slow. Your perception of time is going to be slower than those, uh, like, outside of it. So you're going to feel like an hour has gone by and then you're going to come back up to your spaceship and someone's going to be like, it's been 60 years. Right. There's a great scene in Interstellar, which I know you haven't seen. I haven't. I've been told so many times. I'm sorry to everyone who's recommended, particularly Tom. You've told me so many times to watch it. Um, I'll get to it one day. It came out at the same time as Gravity, and I watched Gravity, mm. and I just don't watch a lot of movies, but it's it's on the list. I'll watch it soon. Two very different movies, for I've sure. Gravity <laughs> and, and Interstellar. Two very different movies, for sure. Um, interestingly, too, it's like, I didn't, I didn't intend to have this transition here, but interestingly, <laughs> with Interstellar... Is, so Interstellar, there's some very interesting things from the production of Interstellar. And there was a physicist who was heavily involved in, not so much the writing of it, but he was heavily involved in the production of the film. Oh, cool. And Christopher Nolan consulted, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan, who wrote the film, consulted with him 
on this lot. And he basically said, I was reading a story a while back about this, so I'm gonna paraphrase some details and I might be off a little bit, but this physicist basically said, I will not be involved with this project. I won't lend you my scientific expertise where you know you need it unless you can assure me that like everything in this film, not everything in this film will be exactly scientifically accurate, but he basically had a few bugaboos that like they were not allowed to do. Mm. And, and it was based off of like, he was like, you cannot use like the black hole or gravity to time travel, right? Was his idea. He's like, you cannot go back in time. Like we, we are pretty certain that that is just not possible. And we're, and even the best theories on gra on gravity and black holes don't really put that in the realm of possibility. So he put a number of things that like, mm. and a lot of them were like, there were three or four of them. And there were, most of them are kind of classic sci-fi tropes. Yeah. And he basically was like, I will not be involved if you use your black hole to do any of this. I appreciate that. More artists need to be more like holding to actual fact because that's what people see and that's what they remember and then we end up with all of these ideas and they're not right interestingly the little aside i've been watching a few of those like expert breakdown videos on youtube where it's like historian breaks down like classic battle scenes uh. right and one of the ones that i was watching the expert put really well and they said it that one of the issues with certain types of these movies is that there's so there are so many elements in them that are correct yeah. that they lend credence to the parts that aren't exactly. and that that creates something that's more confusing to the audience whereas if you put something out there that's like this is pure like hogwash and malarkey from a historical perspective people aren't going to watch it and think to themselves oh well that's what happened in you know 17 dickety two or whatever right like but when things are really close yeah. to how things played out with a few anachronistic or inaccurate elements or even well-intentioned like we're just going to merge a few historical figures together so that we can understand the context of what happened without needing to understand like five different people from five different societies yeah, involvement. We can make it a better story. Exactly. We can tell a better story. We can be more succinct. So it's quite interesting. So, yeah. and I feel like science movies, especially science fiction, especially yeah. falls into that, which is tough because ultimately it's fiction, right? I always think of Jurassic Park. Like when yes. they made the first Jurassic Parks, yes, we thought dinosaurs looked like that. But when they made the new Jurassic Parks, we know that the raptors likely had feathers. Right. And they didn't put feathers on the raptors, and I was so mad. And everyone was like, well, yeah, because that's what people don't think. And I'm like, yeah, but it's science. <laughs> we know now. I know. And there's <laughs> such a weird fine line between it. Interestingly, too, with Jurassic Park, like the original novel, yeah, there's some interesting stuff about genetics and science and like the, the how you would clone a dinosaur. But ultimately, one of the what Michael Crichton was really kind of hitting on in terms of the science fiction element of it, and not even the fiction element of it, but he was really writing a story about chaos theory. Oh. That's why Malcolm as a chaos mathematician is such a principal character in the story. Is that Jeff Goldblum? That's Jeff Goldblum's okay. character. <laughs> He's a principal character in the story because the idea isn't so much about like, you know, how you clone a dinosaur. It's more if you had a zoo of extremely dangerous animals that had all of these systems that needed to work perfectly to keep everyone safe, eventually that system would fail catastrophically and everyone would be eaten by dinosaurs. It's all just zoo tycoon where you can put yetis and dinosaurs and yeah. take it all the fences. <laughs> yeah, and to the point where if you read a copy of Jurassic Park, the each chapter has a fractal at the oh. beginning that is growing as the plot of the story is showing on. Because it's showing you that each one of these essentially logic gates that's in the system that controls the park is creating a fractal. And at one point that there, and that's chaos theory, is that all of the possibilities become possible. So even though you need to have 15 systems fail perfectly to achieve an outcome, that's what will eventually always be like mathematically possible. The more complex your system, the more 
the more of those endpoints that you actually have. So anyway, cool. we're way off topic Yeah, we got now. very excited talking about that. But let's, well, so we'll jump back to black but, holes. But, and well, and I wanted to go back to interstellar. the interstellar point. Yes. Right. <laughs> so this scientist he was involved with, he was a, uh, I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. It might even be Kip Thorne, but he's a, he's a principal black hole researcher. And they were trying to figure out, if you've seen the movie, there's a sequence in which they go near a black hole and the, we see it on screen. It's an unbelievable shot. And it's this, you know, this, it's really interesting. And I know you haven't seen it. So essentially I'll try to describe it for you is it's like you have this black sphere that you cannot see. And there is strings of light, very similar to the black hole images, that kind of orangish visualization going around it, kind of creating that, like, you know, when you draw an eye and you do that kind of like swoop shape, like on both sides, looks like that. And then a line going through it in the middle. And that's all of the material of the accretion disk orbiting around the black hole. And when they went to make the movie, they said to themselves, how do we put this black hole on screen? We don't know what a black hole looks like. We have not imaged one. We've, we've never been able to observe one like this. How do we put it on screen and not make it look hokey? Yeah. You know, not make it look like here's a big funnel of material going yeah. down to a point, right? Because it's not a three-dimensional, like space isn't two-dimensional like that. It's not a plane. It's three-dimensional space. And so they wrote an algorithm, an entire simulation to depict based on this guy's, like based on the complex mathematics that this scientist understood about how the the theories around how material around black holes works. They wrote all of this script to it. Then they went essentially to their graphic, um, their um, visual effects artists, and they pumped this simulation into a visual effects um, software. And that's what it spat out. That's so cool. And so it that image is as close to a real simulation of what we believed a black hole would look like. And to the point where that scientist then went and was able to publish like two or three papers on black holes from the simulation that they were able to perform. That's the crossover of arts and science we need. That's where it like... Because it's so fruitful and it's you could get such cool stuff. Well, and it's true, right? Because again, like you're talking about this guy has a theory... You know, and he's created all this mathematics, but he probably doesn't have the computing power to be able to dedicate to to imaging something like this. This is like thousands of rendering hours to put something like this together from a normal, like you couldn't even do it on your laptop. You need like server stacks of information. You work at a university or whatever. They're never going to give you your their server stacks for that long. Then all of a sudden you're collaborating with a filmmaker who does have access to a server farm and visual effects artists who can spend all this time, all this money, making this thing. And really good visual effect artists. And you're making it for a movie, so it has to look good, right? Like, So yeah. it's like, you're basically saying, here's a person, two people with a vested interest in the same thing. One person's got the know-how, the other person's got the money and the capability, and they come together and they create something that could not have been done by either party on their own, which is really fascinating. Very cool. Yeah. So anyway, a little bit of a plug for... <laughs> Uh, interstellar but it did it furthered our understanding of black holes and what we do now understand about black holes is there's a there's a number of different things that we know there's lots that we don't know but there's a few things that we figured out yes like what is a black hole like how were they formed so we mostly think about black holes being formed when a supermassive star implodes at the end of its life so sometimes we think about this as a supernova 
A supernova we often think about as an explosion, right? It's the material coming off the star. But what drives that explosion, the outward pushing of the material, is actually an implosion. So this is all the material. So a star, has, we've talked about a number of times in the past, has a fusion process inside of it. It's pushing the boundaries of the star back out, even as gravity is pulling it in. Yeah, so that supernova we see is the explosion of the outer layers yeah. of the star. And it's essentially as the star, essentially what happens is the star's fusion reaction can no longer sustain its boundary and it collapses in on itself. It hits this point of extreme density at the center of the star and, and then reverberate, reverberates back outwards and it blasts out the outer shell of the material of the supernova. What's left inside can become a neutron star, which is an extremely dense piece of matter that we can observe. But if it's a supermassive star in the right conditions, the mass that's left behind is condensed to such a small point and it continues to collapse on itself that it forms a singularity. And that is your point of infinite density. And now you have what we would call a stellar black hole or a stellar massive black hole. Yeah, and so these are more like, the, there's four types of black holes and they're more based on size. Yes. Um, so your stellar massive black holes are the most common in our universe. They're from stars about 10 to 20 times more massive than our sun. So big, but not big compared to supermassive black holes, which are more mass than 1 million suns. So again, you have stellar massive black holes, t stars that are 10 to 20 times more massive than our sun that uh, collapse versus supermassive black holes, which were from stars that had more mass than 1 million suns. And so both Sag A star and M87 are supermassive black holes. And these are the types of black holes that we theorize are at the center of most, if not all, galaxies. This is probably one of those cases where you cannot say all because there's, as far as we know, trillions of galaxies. The infinite. Yeah. Um, we just have no idea and we'll never know. And there will probably be an outlier somewhere. Mm -hmm. Who knows? We have, I have no idea. Um, if I did know, I would have a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Like, literally. Um, <laughs> you know, and... So we just, interestingly too, with supermassive black holes is, so we don't really know, we, we don't really know if there's a way to create a supermassive black hole like outright, to go from like nothing to a singularity that is so large, it's a supermassive black hole, a point of, you know, it's interesting as well too, we talk about size, we're still talking about a point of like infinite density, so should size matter, but you know, this is the, this is as best we got at this point, right? Yeah. And again, it shows that, you know, we're talking, you use the word infinite, but we're not really talking about like, in true infinity. We just have no feasible way of measuring along that, that spectrum, essentially. So there's no real understanding how supermassive black holes come to be. We do have some theories that one thing is that supermassive black holes are potentially formed by the merging of black holes. As black holes consume more matter, and in particular, as two black holes come together and create a larger singularity, right, it's all still going to go down to a single point, that that might be how supermassive black holes form. But as Sarah said, you know, we're talking about a supermassive black uh, black hole like Sag A star absorbing the equivalent material as a single grain of rice to a human in a calendar year. And in a century. In a century, sorry. Yeah, yeah way longer than a calendar year. <laughs> in a Many century. calendar years. So what physicists have said is that there's no way that this, the number, the sheer amount of supermassive black holes that we know must exist in the universe, because we can observe at least a handful of galaxies that definitely seem to have this type of object at their center. We know that those supermassive black holes, there's not enough time 
in the universe, since the universe came into existence to the point now, based on what we can observe about how black holes grow as they consume mass, there's not enough time to create these supermassive black holes, let alone the sheer volume of them that we observe. So there's all these theories to try to explain this. One of them is that there might be intermediate black holes, masses that are between stellar and supermassive black holes, and that these may form when like galaxies collapse or all sorts of different things, we, but we have very little observable evidence of intermediate sized black holes. So it creates this really interesting gap in this picture. It's almost like the missing link kind of thing in, yeah. in biology or, um, you know, in protein folding, we, we were never sure if there were transition states in protein folding or if it was all happening at once or, you know, there was, we didn't understand the mechanism that it was happening of. So we're missing this key part of the picture of the evolution essentially of a black hole of, you know, it's, it's life phase, it's growth, whatever you want to call it. We're missing some parts of the picture. And there's some ideas to potentially explain this. There's an idea that potentially there might have been what we call primordial black holes that were formed at the Big Bang or very, very quickly after the Big Bang, you know, from a universal time scale, of course. But that theory also introduces some other problems that we can observe about how the universe was formed. So we don't really know. It's one of the great mysteries that surrounds like how the universe came to be is the existence of these black holes that just based on our observable data and our current understanding, which is extremely pitiful compared to what the actual, you know, what is actually probably happening, you know, is there's this, there's a big blank spot there. There's a fourth type of black hole. Which is a miniature black hole. Mm -hmm. So these are, it's a theoretical concept right now. We haven't found them, um, but they could be as wide as an atomic particle. So itty bitty, but the same mass as Mount Everest. So this is what we mean. Like this is goes to the, the, infinite density right like so so tiny but so so dense somehow so so dense that it is the size of an atomic particle but with mount everest amount of mass mm -hmm. um and these also uh the idea around these is that they could have been formed soon after the big bang which would put them around 13.7 billion years old mm -hmm. there you go there's your four types of black holes so how do we know that black holes merge together well we have observed it we've actually observed um, you might remember, I think it was 2015, I believe that this came out, that we had detected a gravitational wave. I just remember it was a few years ago that it got, wasn't it a few years ago? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, maybe it wasn't 2015, because that's seven years ago. Yeah, I wouldn't um, be aware of it in 2015. No, it was definitely like within the last five years or so. I don't quite remember the specific timing of it, but there is a, there is a special detector called LIGO, uh, which is laser interferometry, uh, something, something geological organization or whatever it might be. That's the, but it's laser interferometry is the technique. Oh, laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory. There we go. LIGO. And they were able to detect a In 2015. Davis was right. Ah, I do have my <laughs> dates proper. Um, so basically this was, we detected this gravitational wave. So you think about like, um, waves on an ocean right yeah you if know. you like drop something heavy in it'll make a big wave exactly right so it's the same sort of thing that we had th there had been this theory that i guess a ripple not a wave yeah more yeah. It's like it's a wave but it's from a ripple yeah whatever language you want to use for right so for a long time it was theorized that gravitational waves should exist if gravity is affecting the fabric of space-time in such a way that we can observe it as gravity, then there's probably some sort of wave effect that's also occurring. But 
gravitational waves are like were notoriously difficult to detect because they're very like small since the 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 change that they're making is so minor from like a human sort of like scale that's very difficult to measure so it involves a same similar type of interferometry where you have things that are really far apart and this involves lasers traveling a known distance and then when and bouncing off mirrors and you're detecting how long it takes the laser to make that trip and this is we're talking about like kilometers long potentially and then in a, what happens with a gravitational wave is it compresses and stretches matter oh. because it's a wave of gravity that traveling through space <laughs> and so what you're detecting is this very slight change to the distance the laser is going we're talking about like minuscule amounts right you're talking about a laser moving the speed of light moving over this incredible distance and then moving like so imperceptibly small but more than like normal noise. And that's the proof of gravitational wave. So in 2015, we detected our first one. It wasn't the first one that's ever hit us. Definitely not. They're probably yeah. hitting us. They're hitting us all the time, but it was the first one that was large enough to be able to detect with this technology and to really be able to look at this technology and say definitively that this is not noise. This has to be a gravitational wave. And they believe that the gravitational wave was released by the merging of two black holes roughly 1.3 billion years ago and it only reached the earth in 2015 so you know 1.3 billion light years away essentially wild mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is but all of this together has really enhanced our understanding of what gravity is and now we have now i think when we think about gravity and the discovery of gravity who comes to mind Sir Isaac Newton and the apple falling from his orchard. So much to the point that his grave, his epitaph in Westminster Alley has him like sitting there with an apple. Like there's an uh -huh. apple prominently displayed on his, like the, if, if most people in Westminster Abbey have like a basically a giant statue that's made of them, an epitaph, and like w in place of a tombstone essentially. Okay. And they all kind of are depicted in a way of like what, what was so significant about their life that they're buried at Westminster Abbey. And that's, I think pretty sure Newton's has like the apple, he's holding an apple or something to that effect. Which is funny because he wasn't actually sitting in his no. garden getting hit by an apple. It was a, it was like an example he came up with. Yeah. Right? Of to, the apple falling to the ground or yeah. you're sitting under a tree and an apple hits you on the head. Yeah. Why? To describe, like, yeah, to like, prove this idea that he's talking about. Yeah. So Newton is typically the person that we associate with gravity, the discovery yeah. of gravity. But we have observed gravity. The ancients observed gravity. You know, the ancient philosophers knew that there was some something that would attract objects with mass to each other. We didn't really, they didn't have the words for it necessarily. They definitely didn't have the mathematics to describe it. But I mean, even like you talk about like, I mean, you have castles, you have warfare, you have siege warfare, and you have people like, oh, how can we get those people down there? We can throw a big rock at them. Or we can pour hot oil on them, right? Like, we know that stuff will move from higher up to lower down if mm -hmm. you let it. Yeah, exactly. And that you need uh, and you need to put in work to move something the opposite way, right? Poor so, old Sisyphus pushing his boulder up the hill. Right? Or you think about stuff like the Archimedes screw that was developed to be able to move water uphill, right? And that's the same idea. You know that you need to exert energy to move something up, but if you put something up and let go, it'll fall down on its own. So we knew that there was this principle, but it was really Newton and 
ultimately it was Newton's calculus. So Newton was able to describe the calculus, which underpins a lot of mathematics. It's really interesting because like, there's all this mathematics that we had from before calculus that like calculus just like slots right into. And it's like, well, this is why that math works. Like you can observe that math working and then make theories about it, right? Like the area of a triangle kind of thing, right? But then you can take some of that understanding and like derive it into the calculus that underlies why that works. Calculus is wild. Like it's yeah. just crazy. It's crazy to think about never having, having no understanding of calculus and then inventing it. Yeah. Newton was uh, next level. Yeah. Like think yeah. about how like divergent your thinking needs to be. And this is why like when he wrote some of this stuff, now the nice thing about mathematics is that it's math and it's very difficult for people to disprove. So if you use the rules of math that everyone accepts to prove something that no one would have ever thought of and you're, proofs or soundproof or why don't you uh, soundproof um i like it your proof your proofs are bulletproof soundproof soundproof <laughs> then no one can really dispute it versus like what newton said with light where it was an observational outcome mm -hmm. and people were like there's no way you're crazy you're making stuff up and then but it would take like and even to the point where right like you could say based on your observations that the earth is revolving around the sun but people won't believe you. But then once you apply Newton's calculus to describe the mathematics of why that's the only way that it works, then it becomes a little bit less disputable. People still disputed it. People still do. That's a different problem. But Newton is also another great example of how science being done like alone and just for science isn't always the best way because Newton was trying to, he was trying to prove the existence of God. And that's yes. how he developed calculus. That's why it's called like Mathematica Principa, princi oh. Principia or whatever in Latin, right? Okay. Like it's this idea of the principal mathematics, the math of God, yeah, essentially. Because he, he, and he developed the math that explains the universe. Yeah. Right? So. I or mean, at least a lot of the classical physics yeah. that we observe in the universe, right? Yeah. Like, or that affects our day-to-day -day in the universe. Yeah. Right? So let's go squirrely with a quantum level. But. Exactly. And our understanding now is more so that probably the physics that underpins the entire universe at its core is quantum physics, but at our scale, classical physics, you know, rules over our day-to-day -day lives. But again, classical physics is underpinned by this quantum physics. Our understanding of quantum physics didn't really come along or start really developing more until you start getting into like the Einstein period and stuff yes. like that. And Einstein is the other big name that we typically heavily associate with gravity. Yes. Pun intended. <laughs> I, if you feel there was a pun there, I thought it was, but that's just me. His name carries a lot of gravity. Has a lot of gravity. Well, I don't know, because the saying weight. is it carries a lot of weight, so yeah. like, I don't know if it really his works name, for a pun, but... His name has a lot of gravity. <laughs> a lot of gravitas, anyway. Right. But this brings me to my good point, too, of like, you know, we typically talk about like mass when we talk about gravity. And then we talk about like weight, like you weigh it different on the moon because the moon has less gravity than Earth. But like, but you have the same mass on the moon. And this used to be one of those things that like will boggle people's minds from time to time. Yeah, it trips me up every once in a while. And I figured out, I, I thought I figured out a really good way to explain this, right? Okay, explain. I'll see. So weight is the measure of the force of gravity on our mass. Thus, weight is different on different planets, right? Gravity on earth has a certain amount. It's not consistent over the earth. We'll talk about that. But, it, it, you know, we generally understand that the average gravity at any point on earth is 9.8 meters per second squared. So it's an acceleration. So every second you fall, you are accelerating by nine meters per second. That's why it's more dangerous to, to fall from hundred feet versus 10. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, there's an upper limit of that because yeah. of the atmosphere. There's an upper limit to the speed you will go. But that's because of other forces. Without gra without the atmosphere, you would continue to accelerate at that rate until you hit the planet or whatever. Even, um, even squirrels wouldn't survive. Right. You go to the moon, though. The moon is a smaller object with less mass, less material, and it exerts less gravitational force. Don't remember what it is. I don't even remember the ratio of the like the gravity on the moon to the Earth. Don't ask me. But I will look it up next time. <laughs> but you're gonna weigh less on the moon because the effect of gravity on your mass is less. You drop an object from the same height, it's not gonna have the same acceleration falling towards the moon as you would that same object on an Earth with no atmosphere. So like your mass is more like your particles essentially like the density of them and like how many particles you have and then weight is the amount that the planet or whatever is pulling on those particles yes weight in terms of the scientific classification of it because there's also a difference between like weight is pounds in sort of more of an imperial measurement system and mass is kilograms in the metric but that's not really that's not really important but yeah like weight is a scientific concept it's the effect of the gravity on your mass mass like you said is the amount of material now you think to yourself, right, but a kilogram is a kilogram. And if I have less weight on the moon, don't I weigh less? I, You know, like if I'm 220 pounds on Earth, am I 115 pounds on the moon or whatever it is? Yes and no, right? Because the kilogram, or in terms of kilogram, mm -hmm. because this more comes down to like the kilogram as a unit of mass measurement because a kilogram is based on a standard. In a vault somewhere in France, right. there is a ball. And it is the kilogram standard. It is a ball of material and it is the weight of one kilogram. The mass of that ball, all of the material in it, represents the relative mass that we, the relative measurement that we've decided to call a kilogram. You bring that standard up to the moon, it's still technically a kilogram. That's a kilogram of mass based on the definition of the measurement. So you are going to weigh your weigh in the conventional sense. Like stand on a scale, weigh. Exactly. The same amount of kilograms, the same amount of that standard unit on the moon as you do on Earth because the weight of the kilogram on the moon is less. So. You lost me. Think about it this way. If you're 50 kilograms on Earth, okay. how many kilograms are you on the moon? Your mass is still 50 kilograms. You are still 50 kilograms because you think about it, right? You know, like a balance right? Like, uh, like the scales, like Libra scales kind of thing, right? If you put some mass on one side, it tilts, you balance that mass out, it balances. You take that scale on earth balanced and you just transport it to the moon and put it there. It will still balance. But if you, yes, yes. But if you measure your weight in kilograms and you go to the moon and you measure your weight in kilograms, it will be less. Still no, because the kilogram is a relative measure. A kilogram is the unit representation of a certain amount of mass. But if you if you took a scale yes. and you set it in kilograms yes. and you put it on the moon and you stood on it. Right, because that, be... yes, the number would be less because that kilogram that you're measuring against is not the relative kilogram. You're, you're measuring against the relative kilogram on Earth. 
what it, the amount of mass on Earth, the weight that that amount on Earth represents. Yes. Right. So you're going to weigh less than that because the gravity is affecting you less. Yeah. But the standard of kilogram is going to be affected less on the moon in the same way that you are. So the kilogram, the amount of kilogram stays the same. The, the amount of mass, the material yeah. is the same. Yes. Right. It's very complicated. It's one of those ones that like always confuses me too. And I thought like, I thought that was like kind of a good explanation for it, but clearly it needs some workshopping. I think it's so. just that the, because people use math or use mass kilogram, and weight interchangeably. And people yeah. use kilogram to weigh themselves. Yes. Which is like, then it changes things, right? Yeah, that's right. Cause you're right. Like if you had a programmed scale and you said, okay, well this is what a kilogram weighs. And then you move that scale to the moon and then you stood on it you would read fewer kilograms, but that's because you're not comparing yourself to a kilogram on the moon, the amount of mass that represents yeah. a kilogram everywhere in space. Yeah. You're comparing yourself to what a kilogram is on earth. Yeah. The difference in the effect of gravity. Yes. So it gets very complicated. I'm it's not I'm... super important. It's a bit of a tangent, but. <laughs> but so, so we have our gravity, right? Yeah. It's holding us to the planet. Uh, it's also keeping objects in orbit through space. So yes. it's holding everything, you know, we orbit our sun. That's why, because the sun has a lot of gravity and we are, uh, within range of it and so we are starting to circle it and we are like uh earth is exerting some gravitational force on the sun yep. it's just a lot less than it's exerting on us which is why we go around it and it doesn't go around us no heliocentrism yeah so the forces of gravity create these uh the seemingly flat ellipsoidal orbits of our planetary systems and galaxies so instead of having everything be orbiting in a in the way that like electrons orbit a nucleus in these like weird clouds and stuff, mm -hmm. gravity keeps things a little bit more simple. It flattens things out. So the way I've always thought about this is like a gyroscope. And I used to have a really hard time with this concept. This used to really like twist my mind um, because especially cause like in space, in the universe, galaxies are not oriented along a plane like that. They're just all over the place. Right. Yeah. But galaxies form these kind of flat discs. Yeah. You just see like a bunch of, you see a bunch of like, circles not spheres in like all these different orientations right like this one's facing up this one's facing forward and all that mm -hmm. and then they all have all these kind of slightly different shapes too mm -hmm. but then like and then you look at a solar system right and it's generally pretty like flat seeming right and there's a little bit of variation there of course but the idea is that because objects in space are spinning they have an angular momentum and it's like a gyroscope right so it's the classic experiment you take a bike tire and you you know hold it on an axle or whatever and you spin it between your arms and then you try to tilt it much like if you're steering a bike and it pushes you back up towards the middle and that's because the mass wants to go is pushed outwards from the spinning and it's going to flatten the disc out and it's going to want to keep it in the plane of the angular momentum and so basically as a star or solar system forms, the star forms, then it's this big cloud of gas, gas forms into a star, everything is swirling around. And then over time, that ball flattens out into a disc of material and that material starts to accrue and turns into planets and stuff like that. That's why sometimes they say like Pluto's not a planet. One of the criteria for being a planet is that you clear your own orbit. So mm -hmm. as that accretion disk starts to flatten out as a star forms, you know, a planet like the Earth is going to be going around its orbit and whatever materials in its way, as it gets to a large enough mass, it's just going to pick up that material and it's going to add it to itself. And then it's going to clear out its orbit. So now it's not hitting any material and it has all the material it needs and it's going to form its little ball. And, you know, and just on and on and on, right? So... That's why we sort of see, the, why we see gravity create this like flat sort of shape, what appears flat from certain perspectives. Yeah, flat and fairly consistent and stable. Yes. Right? Um, but 
the gravity of the sun is actually changing Mercury's orbit over time. Now this is super, super slowly and very small amounts over very long periods of time. But when you're looking at something like space, that's what you do. You look at it over long periods of time and you look at it in a, it, what, what is very small over a short term becomes substantial over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's happening is the, the precession, so there's a change in the orbital orientation. It looks kind of like a wobble of the orbit. Uh, if you put like the sun in the middle and you have your elliptical orbit, your oval, it's kind of like tilting side to side with the center as like your axis there. Um, and it's predicting that this change could potentially lead to it Mercury colliding with the sun or a planet in a few billion years, which is wild. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and ultimately, right, like left unchecked, all of the material of the solar system would eventually like collapse into the sun. It's just going to take longer than the lifespan of the sun to occur from a physical standpoint. Yeah. So... Einstein started to take some of the parts of what Newton was saying that didn't line up with some of the things we were observing, like this wobble that couldn't really be explained by Newton's real, the classic physics, and through a number of different theories. So first there was special relativity, which we often break down to E equals MC squared, the relationship between matter and energy. And then he abridged it eventually into general relativity, which is the effect of gravity on things like photons that don't have mass but they have momentum. And so general relativity sought to explain a lot of these effects that we were seeing. And eventually what general relativity really sort of outlines is the existence of space time, the four dimensional quote unquote material that the universe exists in. So for a long time before this, people thought about space as pure, as entirely empty right? Space was nothing and everything was just in nothing, essentially. It's kind of hard to visualize that way. But what Einstein came around and said was that no, space-time is actually a medium in itself. So in the same way that we know that sound travels through the atmosphere because there's gases that they can create, the vibrations can transfer through, and we can't hear in space because there's no, there's not enough material in the medium. We do understand that there is a medium, the space time in which the three dimensions, three physical dimensions, and then the fourth time dimension that the entire universe sort of exists in. There's still some flaws in this theory because it still, it outlines this space time as under the, the kind of the laws of classical Newtonian physics. And again, we know that ultimately what's going to really underpin the how this works and all of its different sort of like nuances is quantum mechanics. So the way that we can think about gravity affecting space-time, there's a very classic demonstration that you can do where you take a long sheet of fabric, like a, like a bed sheet or something like that, you stretch it out, and then you drop a heavy weight in the center and it creates like a depression. And then you might take like some marbles or something and like set them free kind of onto the tarp and they kind of create that like spiral tornado towards the center. Yeah. Or like if you, I remember we were uh, debating building this at the science center at one point. Mm -hmm. If you like took a hula hoop and you cover it with like a stretchy fabric. So now you have this like circle of stretchy fabric and you put something heavy in the middle. You're going to create what looks like a funnel. Yeah. Right. So then when you put your marble on it, it's going to slowly get closer and closer to your heavy thing in the middle until it falls into it. It's like those, uh, I don't know if they still have them, but like, I like McDonald's and stuff. They used to have those, it was like a donation thing, mm -hmm. but it was like a big funnel and you'd like put a coin and like watch it go down. This was yeah. before you had cell phones as a kid. You were like, can I have a quarter? Yeah. So that's like a two dimensional visualization of gravity, right? Yeah. We know space time is three dimensions plus time. 
And so we, it's harder to visualize it that way, but essentially it's a point at which you have this massive distortion of space-time. You're pinching space-time towards this massive um, mass. Yeah, because, like, yeah, gravity mm-hmm. bends space-time. And more massive objects create greater distortions in space-time. More massive objects have more gravity. Just like how a bowling ball in the center of your hula hoop with stretchy fabric would pull the fabric down more than a baseball. Yeah. So we do know from a lot from all this understanding and the and the stuff that's come after Einstein and our continued observation of gravity, we know that gravity is one of the four fundamental forces in sort of classic physics. So there's the strong and the weak forces. These are inside the centers of atoms. These are what holds the nucleus of an atom together. Then there's the electromagnetic force. We kind of understand this as like the electromagnetic spectrum and a lot of these different things. Like and then, light. Like light, yeah. And radio waves and gamma radiation and stuff like that. And then there's gravity, which affects mass. So we kind of identified these four fundamental forces. Then we began observing them, especially gravity. And when we observed space, we started to see the movement based on the calculus that Newton gave us, our understanding of gravity. We were able to observe things and start to make predictions. So this is like we, uh, using this mathematics, like they predicted that Neptune was out there. Yeah. And it was a certain size before the telescopes were strong enough to even see Neptune. Right? And Based again... Based on like the movement of the other planets and stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. There there were there were these weird variations in the planets around Neptune, the orbits that are near Neptunes, that just didn't make sense unless there was an object of a certain mass orbiting the sun out there. And even to the point where there's other gravitational effects that are still observed that they believe there might be a planet X beyond the orbit of Pluto that is potentially quite large that is having some effects on the gravity of, you know, the observable solar system. But but because you're so far out, we just haven't been able to observe this object. But it's it's still sort of theorized that it's out there or that there is some other element affecting the orbits of the solar system that we haven't discovered yet. But we know that there's something that doesn't quite add up if it's just the eight planets plus Pluto. So the, and this also led to in the 1930s, right? There's a lot of talk about dark matter. And this is again, this observation of galaxies and the speed at which that they were spinning around their, what we now know as black holes at the center or potentially black holes at the center. And that based on what we were observing, that galaxies should just spin themselves apart at the speed that they're moving, but that something must be holding them together. And this was sort of the first evidence of the existence of what became coined as dark matter. Some material we couldn't directly observe that seemed to be all over the place and creating some level of force that we couldn't account for in our current understanding of gravity. We still think dark matter exists, right? Yes, we do. Okay. We I don't know how much further our understanding of what dark matter is has gotten, but I think it's just become more accepted that it's out there and it's playing a role in how the universe is held together, how galaxies are held together. Mm-hmm. And there's even a belief too is that like dark matter probably has some pretty big effects at the universal scale in terms of how the universe is expanding and contracting. Mm-hmm. Because again, there's things about the pace of expansion that we can observe that don't add up to, you know, some of the numbers that we do have essentially. I just thought of a, a good example of like this, as you start spinning something and how it like starts to spread out and stretch out. Imagine you have a plate. All of my examples today are apparently gonna have to do with plates or frogs. So you have a plate and you put like a bunch of paint on it. And then you, if you like took the plate and you balance it on a stick or whatever, and you spun it, all that paint's going to fly off the edge, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's the, the way that the force is going, it wants to all spread out 
and it get like shot out. But if you put something really heavy at the middle, like a singularity, you put a black hole there, it's going to help to hold all of that into place as this thing is spinning where everything would normally just shoot out. Yeah. And so ultimately, our biggest weakness right now in our current understanding of gravity, relativity, and space-time is that we're working from this classical physical perspective because it's what we're comfortable with, it's what we can observe, it's what we deal with every day. But we're pretty certain that the universe is really underpinned by quantum mechanics. It's quantum in nature. And the quantum interactions build up to create what we perceive as classical physics. So what we mean when we say something is quantum in nature, we mean that it's made up of particles such as quarks and electrons, those subatomic particles. Uh, I am not a particle physicist. Mm -hmm. I am not well-versed in the standard particle model of the universe. So I can't go into too much more details of like what quarks are, and the various types of quarks and stuff like that. But we're going to do our best by talking about one very specific quantum particle that you've probably heard about in this discussion of gravity in the past, the Higgs boson or boson. I don't really know how his name is said. I would say Higgs boson. Yeah, so same. So what do you know about the Higgs boson, Sarah? I know it was a big deal. Yeah. The big deal. <laughs> we talked, a, we talked a little bit earlier about the Large Hadron Collider, yes. right? Uh, it's a super collider in uh, at the facility CERN in Switzerland. I'm not going to tell you what the what CERN stands for because it, it's in French, I believe. Um, and it is a... It's the, I don't think it's the largest super collider in the world anymore. Yeah, I know in one of our things, in one of our episodes, we were talking about how they're building another big one. Yeah, but, but it's huge. It's this underground particle accelerator that's multiple, that's several kilometers long and a big loop. And they've used it. It's currently, I think, in like a decommissioned phase where they're like mm -hmm. built, rebuilding parts of it and like updating parts of the technology and stuff like that. But basically where they are taking some of the building block particles of the universe accelerating them to speed close to the speed of light and then smacking them into each other and seeing what happens it's like a big hollow donut right yes it's yeah, yeah it's just a big tube essentially mm -hmm. big circular tube yeah. tr like a track like a racetrack yeah. you're just pulling in particles around slamming into each other and then observing what comes out okay and then as we've been talking so they slam some of these like building block particles together and they were trying to... I think it's like, protons that they're often slamming together, but I'm not 100% sure. Neutrons or whatever. I don't even know. One of those. Um, so they were slamming them together to see if anything would, like, come off of it, right? Or, like, if they could get a smaller particle from this. It's a number of different experiments. Okay. So a lot of it, what I would boil it down to, is that they are trying to recreate the conditions at the Big Bang. Okay. At the moment of the creation of the universe. And they're trying to understand better those brief moments after the big bang where all of these particles were suddenly manifested and then broke down into other things so things like the higgs boson in particular it's a particle manifestation the physical manifestation of it of what we call the higgs field right so this is very similar to um a photon is the physical manifestation of the electromagnetic field, right. right? We observe the photon. We know it acts as both a particle and a wave, and it's how we observe certain types of electromagnetism, right? We don't directly observe all types of photons, but all parts of the electromagnetic spectrum are observed as photons, right? right? We humans don't observe them all as photons because we can only see that really small sliver of physical light or um, visible light, sorry. So... 
um, what we, so the Higgs boson as a particle is extremely short-lived and volatile. It breaks down into other things. So to discover the Higgs boson, you smack these things together. You observe, you know, through different like electro, like, you know, you can observe the electronics and detect these different particles. And then you detect basically what we would assume the Higgs boson would like break down into. So, you know, when we talked about, I know this is a while ago, we talked about with, um, PEDs, performance enhancing drugs, when they detect them in their, in your system, they're not looking for the performance enhancing drug because your body digests it. Yeah. They're looking for the markers. Exactly. They're looking for biological, the meta the metabolites of those drugs, what your body is going to break drugs like that down into. Right. And this is exactly the same as what they're doing with the particle accelerators at CERN is they are saying, okay, the Higgs boson is going to break down into four electrons, whatever subatomic particle. I don't think it's four electrons, but we know that this should be evidence of this thing having existed. And so you do this over and over and over and over again. And then you start to measure, you know, again, cause you can measure the energies, energy is conserved. So you can start to say, well, this must be close to what the energy of this particle was before it split into all these different, these other particles. So there was a huge pursuit of the Higgs boson. Because we had the, the Higgs field had been theorized for a really long time that it pervades the entire universe and that it formed shortly after the Big Bang. Not immediately, but that after the temperature of the universe started to descend past a certain point and things started to stabilize, that this Higgs field began to permeate the entire universe. The Higgs field and anything that interacts with it is given mass. So the, so the Higgs field gives mass to... Things So like in particle physics, they talk about the W and Z bosons. Again, another, so bosons, again, are these like particle representations of fields that can sometimes be observed. And so the W and Z bosons were created by a combining of the electronic and weak forces in classical physics, fundamental physics, into what we call the electroweak force. And so the W and Z bosons are the physical manifestations of this electroweak force. Again, it's not super important, the like nitty gritty particle physics that goes into it. But basically what we understand is that anything that interacts with the Higgs field acquires a mass. The more you interact with this field, the higher your mass is. So things like a photon, they don't have mass. They're still affected by gravity because they have angular momentum. I don't really know exactly the, like, I think it's more because you have angular momentum. You're moving through space time in a particular way. If space time is warped, you're going along with it, even though you're not being affected by the mass, but the medium you're traveling through is. Right. Like space time is bent so much that you're just like, well, I'm on this track now. Yeah. It'd be like yeah. if you had a hot wheels track and your car going somewhere and then you just took the, the track and you just bent it in one direction. <laughs> the, the car has no option but to go that way, even though you haven't physically affected the car itself. Right. So basically to observe the Higgs field, we had to create this, we had to create observable evidence of the particle. And that was the Higgs boson. And that was the one that they slammed together that people were like, is this going to create a mini black hole? That was more just a concern with the large Hadron Collider oh. in general. I guess it's hadrons that they're colliding because that's what it's called. Oh, makes I, sense. I, I think a hadron is an umbrella term for a type of, for lots of types of subatomic particles. Oh, okay. But again, yeah, it was the concern originally was when they turned the LHC on was that the experiments that they were doing were potentially going to create miniature black holes that could like, you know, that we had no idea what was going to happen with yeah. them. Right. As... And like, 
even before it started. And there's actually technology in the Large Hadron Collider that like works to destroy anything of that oh. nature that could form. And and they even sort I'm of I'm glad say, someone thought about that. They were like, we should we should address this. <laughs> well, it's sort of like the same sort of thing with um, Y2K. Right. Yeah. Uh, in our current understanding, you know, 2022, most kids don't even know about what yeah, Y2K I was gonna say, is. If you're really young and you're listening to this, Y2K was at the turn of the century when we got to, you know, year 2000. Um, the computers were not set up to, it was like the computers weren't set up to work with the zeros, right? So the big thing was, is that in the nineties, we didn't have very much, we didn't have a lot of bits. So bytes and bits are slightly different, but bits, you know, the, so you think about like an eight bit computer game, right? That was because you had eight bits of Ram. So eight individual on offs kind of that you could kind of deal with. It's, it's more complicated than I'm explaining now, but like we didn't have very many of these bits. So programmers had to try to save information space wherever possible. So the date fields, in particular, it was a lot about date fields, was that the year part of the date field, nowadays we deal with it often year, 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 like four digits, but because they didn't have that much data, that was a pretty feasible place to sort of say, well, we only ever really need the last two digits of a year, right? right? But the problem was is that because of how this was programmed then, it was going to create this programming loop where at the turn of the century and into the millennium that all of those date fields were going to either like stack overflow and have nowhere to go because they couldn't perceive past nine nine or they were going to all default to zero and then it was going to cause all these other breakages. Yeah, and everyone it, thought like all the nukes were going to fire and everything was going to collapse. Anything controlled by technology was going to uh, just be gone exactly so there was a lot of fear around y2k that like the world was going to end a lot of people had world ending parties and it's really interesting because with y2k there there's all this like kind of yeah the science fiction doomsday fiction that comes out of it of like the nukes are going to launch and every computer yeah. system going to fail and there were real concerns particularly with the banking system yeah but the, the and but the interesting thing is, is like obviously like the nukes firing and like all these insane doomsday scenarios were like really overplayed and have become extremely overplayed in our like kind of zeitgeist an early family guy episode is about that yeah exactly the whole <laughs> world ends because of y2k i think yeah. there's a simpsons episode about it too yeah, right and but then there's also this kind of belief in kind of current culture as well that like well y2k wasn't a thing at all because it didn't affect people but the interesting thing is very much like we're talking about with the Large Hadron Collider. Someone sort of said like, well, we need to plan for this contingency as unlikely as it might be. We need to have some safeguards in place. Leading up to Y2K, there were programmers who were working, who worked tirelessly to rewrite the code where this weakness was in all of these different computer systems that were in use all over the world to fix this problem so that when the millennium happened, basically nothing happened. Yeah, it's the, it's the idea of, like, it's Murphy's Law, right? Yes. If you plan for it, it's not going to happen. If you don't plan for it, it will. And even just like we were talking about with <laughs> chaos theory, right? It's this idea of, like, you can have what's called, like, perfect failure, where yeah. you need to have, if you need to have 15 systems that all need to fail for something to happen, there is always a use case. There's always a scenario where all 15 of those things could happen. And, yeah. and we see those sorts of things when you have nuclear reactors fail. Exactly. Or, and even with nuclear weaponry, yeah. like nuclear, like broken arrow is a code word for a lost nuke. There actually have been a handful of broken arrow incidents in the world over the years, but there's a number of safeguards. So there's even a, there's a broken arrow scenario and I'm a little hazy on the details where like a nuke was actually like accidentally dropped in the continental U S right. but, and it was something like 
14 out of 15 fail-safes failed. And if the 15th fail-safe had failed, the nuke would have detonated. And right, and it just goes to show you that there's almost, and there's a word for it, and I'm really bothered that I cannot remember the word for this type of planning. There's a, a type of planning that has to do with like preventing a perfect failure. Well, and I like can't redundancy. quite remember what it is. Because redundancy, right? Yes. Like you put 15 fail-safes in because you're like, at so, any of these could fail, but the more fail-safes we have, the, the safer we are overall because the like the likelihood of one fail safe f- failing is so much X and then the likelihood or whatever yeah. yeah and then the likelihood of two fail safes failing is less than that and so the more mm-hmm. you put in the safer you get and it's the same with like our dna the reason we have so many of those like extra base pairs and all that extra even stuff. being diploid right you yeah. have two copies of every allele it can create some protection from certain types of diseases redundancy is everywhere in yeah. the universe right so that's a lot of like what we understand about gravity today. Now, one of my favorite parts about this uh, as an individual or like one of the things I like to like dream about or think about is like gravity technology. So we're all probably pretty familiar with like, you know, um, it's really interesting because in Star Wars, they basically never talk about it. Like they never really mention why it is that they can just like walk around on the spaceships. Like, yeah. you know, you, you read some of the like deeper lore stuff. It just talks about like, yeah, they've got like, you know, the hyperspace drive generates a gravity field, whatever, right? Science fiction, science fiction. But it's the same thing. A lot of science fiction stories deal with how do you deal with the problem of gravity in space? More near science fiction stuff tends to deal with have spacecraft that has centripetal parts that are spinning around at a certain pace. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if you've watched the 100, the like the space base they have basically that the humans escape to and they're living on in space, mm-hmm. that's the reason it's spinning. Yeah. I think there's something very similar in like the Expanse, which I know is really popular, same sort of thing. But it's that's a pretty common design element you see in sort of more near science fiction, stuff that's more set in the next kind of 100 years or so. Would that be like the Star Trek, um, what are they called? The big like stations? Because they're like kind of round and then long. Maybe if they're rotating, right? But then I don't remember if they're rotating. Yeah, but the idea is that it would be spinning like a bike wheel, and you would actually have to like stand on the side, on it, kind of on its side as it's spinning around. Yeah. Um, I think in like The Martian, Andy Weir's The Martian, um, the ship that they're on has an area with artificial gravity that's created from this spinning effect Mm -hmm. of the whole craft. Um, but with like more far science fiction stuff like Star Trek, there's like a gravity field, right? Artificial gravity on a spacecraft and even some of the Star Trek, Star Trek, right? It's both. Right. Cause in Star Trek, <laughs> they're walking around the enterprise, enterprise. It, you know, it's not rotating or anything like that. And even if the disc in the enterprise's big thing was rotating, <laughs> that's not, you would be sticking to the sides, yeah. not the ground. So <laughs> they're like one of those, uh, fair mm-hmm. rides. And I think there's even been several examples in Star Trek. I'm not a big Trekkie, so I don't know all the examples, but I think there's been instances in the show or the movies where the artificial gravity fails and then everybody's just like floating around. Right. Um, another example is like in mass effect, that's where the title of the game comes from oh. is the, they discover an element called element zero, which essentially would be like a dramatization of the Higgs boson in a certain, from a certain perspective, you could maybe make that connection. Yeah, like the, the gravity element. Exactly. It's this element that can be used to manipulate gravity. So the drives that are pushing the spacecraft are also creating a gravity field. And it's also what some of like the superpowers like that allow you like the, what would essentially be like the magic class in a traditional RPG, like where you can like throw objects with your mind and stuff there because people have developed, like some people have emerged with the ability to manipulate these 
gravity fields through like element zero or whatever. So ma- they call it mass effect fields because they're affecting mass. Ah. So again, there's just, just to say there's a ton of science yeah. fiction concepts around like how mass and gravity is handled. And there's so many times where like, especially a show, like if it's a, a serial show, like they'll have a, a moment where they turn off the gravity if they're yes. like they're trying to like get away from somewhere or there's like a fight so they'll turn off the gravity and everyone starts floating to the ceiling and they turn it back on and all the bad guys fall back down yeah exactly so it's a super common trope in science fiction and in partly too because it it's a big problem about long-term space flight right is if you have no gravity you have this massive you know bone density loss yeah. so if you're even in the period that it would take you from with current technology to go from earth to mars the loss of bone density would be so great that you would basically have to spend the first several months on Mars rehabbing because your body would be so broken down. So we need to try to find ways to artificially create gravity so that people don't lose as much bone density in space so that they can spend more time on the planet doing the actual work that they're set to do. Yeah, and you lose bone density in space because you don't have gravity because you're not like working to hold your body up. Yeah. I mean, we see this in just humans on Earth as people get older, like you get into your senior years, your bone density tends to drop. And that's why one thing that they'll tell the seniors is like, you should be staying active and you should be like, like, and to women as well, like you should be lifting weights because women can have a trouble, have trouble with bone density as well. Uh, doing with calcium levels and everything, yeah. but lifting weights helps to, uh, like increase bone density, which increases your health and your fitness overall. So if there wasn't gravity, then you're just not doing that physical work. Yeah. You know, floating around a space station is not as hard as walking on your like on your body yeah so interestingly there comes this question of like is gravity technology possible and there is no scientist science that says that gravity manipulation would be impossible right as far as we know it could be impossible but it could be possible because in this field we're really like we're really like little toddlers in terms of like the amount of knowledge we have of this yeah like we have some we have some good ideas we've got some good stuff but we just haven't observed enough and we haven't we just don't know. There's so many like, well, I don't know. We'll find out one day. Yeah, we're very much in the speculative stage where yeah. we're proposing ideas about gravity and about gravity fields and the, and really down the line, the manipulation of gravity. But we're only, we're speculating these things and then we need to seek out to try to prove them, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we do think that there probably is the potential to manipulate gravitational fields is because we are manipulating fields as is, we are we can manipulate the electromagnetic field, right? Whether with magnets, different technologies, right? And I think, you know, where Sarah used the word, like in our, we're toddlers with this type of science or our infancy, an analogy that I used was like with the early light bulb, right? When the first light bulb was created, it was based around the principles that we knew about the movements of electrons through material. And it was based on this idea of like, well, if you cram a bunch of these electrons through a really, really tight space, they have to give off some of their energy in other ways because they can't all fit through the way they want to. There's too much resistance from what we understand about electricity. And if you can create this device that harnesses that, what is lost is a photon. But it's super inefficient, right? That's why we hardly use incandescent bulbs anymore because we've now graduated to a much deeper understanding of the electromagnetic field. So now we can have things like halogen lights and fluorescents that are more like plasmas and based around this idea of, well, we're moving an electron through a material giving off and and then that movement is going to cause the material to glow rather than we're forcing the electrons to to give off energy in a way that they don't want to. Yeah, it's like if you brought a neon light back to like the 1700s, they'd be like, what witchcraft is this? And mm-hmm. you'd 
be blowing their minds. And if someone, if a traveler came from the 2400s, if humanity hasn't destroyed itself by then, uh, if you, if someone came back with like a gravity gun, yeah, we'd be like, this is witchcraft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you made a pact with a demon. <laughs> and I think gravity as a science fiction concept too just had, like, I think captures our imaginations really well because it we... has a lot of gravity. <laughs> You can't use this. Yeah, you can't use the same (laughs) pun over and over. You can use like you can use gravity puns, but you can't just use like it doesn't have the same gravity every time. I will, I will, and I did. (laughs) But yeah, so (laughs) I just, I just do think it it really captures our imagination because we deal with gravity all the time, and because we don't have answers on it. Exactly. So much stuff like you can't. It's hard to like make cool sci-fi concepts about because the answers already exist. So you're really just wrong, right? Mm As opposed to gravity, there's still such this this unknown to it that it's like, well, I can be so creative within this field because the box is still super undefined. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, you know, ultimately, we... And, it, and ultimately, too, we've seen a number of times the that our pursuit of ideas in science fiction can inspire science. And even just like we were talking about with Interstellar, right? The pursuit yeah. of trying to create a, a dramatic visualization for this... In, in, like important scene in the film to, you know, and unfortunately some of the like nitty gritty science starts to kind of break down after this point in the movie, because there's, there is some artistic license stuff that's taken in order to tell the story he wants to tell. Yeah. But you know, that informing science and the science informing the image and those two things moving in concert, you know, sometimes leads to ideas that we would have never thought of. And it makes sense for if you give an artist a scientific concept that we don't have an explanation for and you go, you're creative. So take this idea and figure out, like, be creative with it and figure out what it could be, right? And if you get enough people doing that, someone's probably going to be right. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the records sort of state that Newton was probably one of the most milk toast people you'd ever meet. Just like what one of the most. What does that mean? Uh, milk toast, M-I-L-Q-U-E-T-O-A-S-T, means like very like plain, like just gentry, like just. Wasn't he all about? alchemy as well though he trying to yeah I, there was some gold? stuff around alchemy but i think like from a personality's perspective it's all he's often painted contemporarily as this like very kind of like figure like kind of flat line um yeah, but like, obviously like, this is a person who is extremely creative yeah because he was able to think in ways that other people couldn't think i heard he like he didn't get along with a lot of society because he like wouldn't play by their rules because he was so much who he was exactly yeah right so but in you know and so it just again it really shows that like in order to push fields like this forward, you have to be able to think in ways that nobody thinks. And some of the best time, best ways to do that is through art. It's, it's to put yourself outside of the science and forget what you think, you know, and just think what is possible. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. It is cool. Gravity is cool. Gravity waves, man. What if we, what if one day we're surfing the gravity waves, Sarah, hanging 10. Would there be big gravity sharks? Maybe. Like That's, land sharks. I've started rewatching Clone Wars, mm. uh, and they just uh, ran into a bunch of what they call the mantis something in a in a nebula. I don't know. Big space creatures are awesome. They're very yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe they exist. We just can't see them. That's what oh. dark matter is. Anyway, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> right, giant space jellyfish that are out there. No. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say about yeah. about uh, gravity. Yeah, I think we I think we went through it. Fairly in depth for our flyby overview. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you liked this this kind of format where we kind of start bigger and we just keep asking questions about the stuff we're working on, as opposed to the other way we tend to go, where we start with like the basics and we build up. Let us know on 
Instagram at Temporary Experts or Twitter at Temporary Expert, just one expert. Um, you can also find Third Sock from the Sun on Instagram or Facebook. So if you only have Facebook, you can reach out to me there and I will pass on any uh, fun facts or, uh, you know, compliments to Davis. And, you know, I'll see them too. Davis just gave you a thumbs up and a big smile. So you can't see him. Um, but yeah, uh, let us know through those channels. And if you like the show and you want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave us a like or a review. I recently discovered that you can do it on Spotify. You got to tap the little three dots and you oh, can leave us. I don't think you can leave a review, but you can definitely leave a like a rating. Ah. So any of that stuff will help us to reach new audiences. It helps us hack the algorithm and just get in front of more people. So we'd really appreciate if you would do that. Awesome. Well, so from all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And together we've been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening.